uh, it's always good to be in Madrid. And it is delightful this weekend to be Oxford in Madrid. Our first session today concentrates on Spain's magnificent golden age from about the 1550s to about the end of the 1680s. And we are extraordinarily fortunate that we have two speakers, both distinguished academics from Oxford, who are internationally admired authorities on Spain and Madrid in this period. Uh, Jonathan Thacker works on Golden Age drama, not just the playwrights, but the actors and actresses, the audiences and the wider society in which drama was performed. And he also helps keep the drama of Spain's Golden Age alive and accessible in theatres today in the UK. Uh, Professor Sir John Elliott has written extensively and magisterially on the history of this period of Spain and the Hispanic world and beyond this period. He is the author of numerous fundamental works. If you want to understand uh, the Spanish politics and art and history more generally of the period we're looking at today, you should at least read his extraordinary study of the Count Duke of Olivares. And as we all know, studying the past sometimes casts some light on issues in the present. So I would also recommend to you thinking about some of the current issues that our second panel will be looking at, an earlier study of John Eliot's called The Revolt of the Catalans. Please watch this space. Each of our two speakers will speak for about 25 minutes. We're in for a real treat. And then we will look forward to a question and answer session. Uh, Jonathan Thacker will talk about theater and society in Golden Age Spain. But first, uh, John Eliot, uh, a highly prized historian, including with the Principe de Asturias Prize here in Spain, will talk about art and politics in Golden Age Spain. John. Thank you very much indeed, Francis. Well, I want to start this talk on art and politics in Golden Age Spain uh, with an image with which you're all familiar, the Escorial, the great monastery palace built by Philip II, uh, 50 kilometers northwest of Madrid, which he had made the capital of Spain in 1561. And the Escorial uh, took some 21 years to build. The construction went on from 1563 uh, to 1584. And from the time of its completion, right up until today, uh, it stood in all its solemnity and grandeur as a symbol of the power of Spain and its monarch and their dedication to the defense of the faith against the forces of Protestantism on the one hand and uh, on the other, uh, the Ottoman Empire, the, the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Uh, here you see a rather crude engraving of the early 17th century of Philip II uh, defending religion with the escorial, the image of the escorial uh, in the background. Well, now, when the, the last stone was laid at the escorial in 1584, uh, Spain was the greatest power in Europe and the possessor of its worldwide empire. When Philip succeeded his father, the Emperor Charles V, as King of Spain in 1556, he inherited also uh, the Netherlands, uh, Sicily, together with much of Italy, and the Indies, the vast regions of Central and South America, uh, conquered and settled by the Spaniards uh, during the first half of the 16th century. And then in 1580, just as the Escorial was nearing completion, he succeeded to the throne of Portugal, 
which brought with it another enormous overseas empire, stretching from Brazil in the west to Goa in India and the Moluccas in the Far East. And with this combined Spanish-Portuguese empire, which was known to contemporaries as the Spanish monarchy, the Monarquia Española, came enormous wealth. Uh, it enjoyed a monopoly of the lucrative Asian spice trade. Above all, it was master of the silver extracted from the mines discovered by the Spaniards in Mexico and Peru. And this silver was shipped back annually from America to Seville, which was the great emporium of the Spanish Atlantic economy. And year in and year out, uh, silver remittances constituted something like 20% of Philip's revenues and those of his successors, and enabled them to borrow enormous sums from the Crown's Genoese bankers uh, to finance expenditures which always outran income. Well, not surprisingly, Spanish power, uh, drawing on the immense resources of a global empire, on a formidable military machine, and on an impressive, if slow-moving, bureaucracy, was both hated and feared. It was hated by the Protestants of Northern and Central Europe, who saw it as wanting to reimpose domination by the Church of Rome across the continent, and it was feared by rival states which suspected that Spain's monarchs were aiming at universal monarchy. Spain, after all, was the superpower of the day, and Philip II and his Habsburg successors of the House of Austria had no doubt that they had a direct line to the Almighty and a God-given mission to sustain the cause of the church. But this sense of their unique relationship with a God who'd conferred so much power upon them wasn't reflected, as you might have expected, in flamboyant representations of Spanish kingship. On the contrary, uh, images of the dynasty from Charles V onward were almost deliberately understated. Uh, if Spain's monarchs were gods on earth, they were also human beings with all the fragility of humans. And the Emperor Charles V, in particular, eschewed grandiloquence, and his chosen painter, Titian, wasn't afraid to depict him as a tired and careworn monarch. And here, this is uh, Titian's a uh, portrait of uh, Charles V, painted in Augsburg, 1548, uh, towards the end of his uh, time as emperor. And this tradition persisted right through to the end of the, of the dynasty, this tradition of understatement. Here is uh, Philip II, uh, painted by uh, an Italian uh, court painter, Sofonisba Anguishola, and you can see the austerity uh, of the image. And if you follow on, uh, here we have the young Philip IV, uh, painted by Velázquez in the early 1620s, shortly after he'd come to the throne. It was in the Prado, some of you will be seeing it uh, later today. And Philip in old age, uh, of which again, this is a version in the Prado, there's another one in the National Gallery in London. And there was very little resort to allegory in depictions of Spanish kingship. I think this was partly a reflection of a pictorial tradition which was very heavily influenced by North European realism. Spain had a close commercial connection with the, with the Netherlands, which after all formed part of Philip II's inheritance. But I also suspect that the austere style of Spanish royal portraiture was itself a form of political statement. Uh, lesser rulers like the Florentine Medici needed all the symbolism they could get but the monarchs of Spain, as the greatest monarchs in the world, uh, needed no status symbols to enhance their majesty and power. But the consciousness of Spain's greatness, which helped to drive its imperial mission in the 16th century, uh, came face to face with some very unpleasant realities in the closing years of the 16th century. Uh, from the 1560s, Philip II had been confronted by the revolt of his subjects in the Netherlands, and in spite of vast expenditure on the Spanish army of Flanders, it failed to suppress the revolt. And by the end of the reign, the northern and primarily Protestant provinces of the Netherlands were on their way to being transformed into an independent Dutch Republic. And then in 1588, as we all know, 
Philip's plans for the invasion of the England of Elizabeth uh, were frustrated by the defeat of his invincible armada. And heavy overexpenditure on the army and on Philip's very costly foreign policies led in 1597 to royal bankruptcy, which in practice was the forced conversion of short-term into long-term debts. And then to top it all, in the later 1590s, those were years of famine followed by plague, which may have killed 10% of the population, something like 600,000 out of a population of 6 million. Well, all this meant that on his death in 1598, Philip II bequeathed to his young and colorless son, uh, Philip III, depicted in a painting in the Prado by Juan Pantoja de la Cruz, uh, he left Philip III a difficult and uncertain inheritance. Uh, Spain was still the dominant power in Europe, but there was a growing mood of uncertainty and crisis. And from 1600, we find the word decline, declinacion, appearing in political and economic treatises on the current state of Spain. And in a famous phrase, uh, one contemporary writer described his country, the country of uh, Cervantes Don Quixote, which the first part was published in 1605, second part in 1615. He described his country as a country of the enchanted, living outside the natural order of things. A country that had lost the sense of productive wealth and from the king downwards was living on credit. The crown had enormous debts along with commitments on a global scale. And to use the phrase coined by Paul Kennedy, we have here a classic case of imperial overstretch. Too many commitments, too few resources to fund them, in spite of all the silver of the Indies. And the generation that came to power with the young Philip III at the turn of the century showed some awareness of this. It tried to reduce commitments by negotiating peace treaties with Spain's enemies, including England, but it failed to use the years of peace to introduce long overdue reforms, and instead it launched out on a wave of conspicuous consumption. And when Philip III died prematurely in 1621 and was succeeded by his 16-year-old son, Philip IV, Spain and Europe were again on the brink of war. Uh, the 12 years' truce with the Dutch expired that same year, 1621, and simultaneously Spain found itself being dragged into the Central European conflict that would escalate into the Thirty Years' War. And Philip IV chose as his favorite and first minister a member of the Andalusian nobility, uh, the Count of Olivares, uh, here depicted by Velázquez, around about 1625, pictures now in the Hispanic Society of New York. And Olivares uh, came to power with a program designed to check and, if possible, reverse the process of decline and to make his young royal master, in reality, what he already was in theory, a king supreme in the arts of war and peace alike. And the combination of war and reform that lay at the heart of Olivares' ambitious schemes for the renewal and revival of Spain uh, proved, in the end, to be unsustainable. Uh, he confronted a formidable rival in the France of Cardinal Richelieu, and in 1640, both Catalonia and Portugal, under intense pressure to produce men and money for the war, revolted against the government of Madrid. Uh, Catalonia was reconquered 12 years later. Portugal, of course, secured its independence forever. And soon afterwards, Olivares himself fell from power. And when France and Spain finally made peace at the Treaty of the Pyrenees in 1659, uh, European hegemony effectively passed from the Spain of Philip IV to the France of his nephew and now son-in-law, Louis XIV of France. So we have then what can be read and generally is read as a story of decline, a story of the decline of Spain's international power from its high point around about 1580 when Philip had acquired Portugal and its overseas empire to the death in 1700 of his unhappy and very sickly great-grandson, Carlos II, and the advent of the Bourbons to the Spanish throne. Uh, here's a portrait by the court uh, painter Juan Carreño de Miranda, also in the Prado, of Carlos II in armor, 
a very improbable representation. And uh, Carlos II uh, shows all the effects of Habsburg interbreeding. Uh, most of us, uh, over six generations, have 126 ancestors. He had only 46 ancestors. There was a decline, too, in the economy of Castile, the heartland of Spain, which had enjoyed a degree of growth and prosperity in the 16th century before being crushed by bad government, a crippling burden of taxation, and environmental and demographic misfortune. But against this story of decline, we must set another and more positive one. Uh, the age of Spain's political and economic decline is also known as the golden age of its arts. And the 17th century, as I'm sure you all know, is the great age of famous prose writers like Cervantes, Quevedo, Gratian, great poet, Gongora, of wonderful playwrights like Lope de Vega, Tirso de Molina, Calderón de la Barca, about whom we'll very shortly be hearing from Jonathan Thacker, and of great artists, Zobaran, Velázquez, Murillo, and a host of lesser luminaries. The Spain of the 17th century can boast of a glittering constellation of men of letters and artists, and this, I think, raises a fundamental question that can also be asked of other societies faced with comparable problems. The relationship, if any, between the state of the arts and the state of the economy. Well, nothing, of course, can explain the emergence of a genius like Velázquez. But even geniuses have to eat, and ideally, they need an environment in which their gifts can be developed and brought to fruition, although life was hard for many, for many of them, and not least for Cervantes. A favorable environment for the arts can, I think, be political, social, cultural, or a combination of all three. And my own suspicion is that the very sense of living on the cusp between national greatness and decline sharpened the awareness of the fragility of the human condition among writers and artists and blurred the dividing line between reality and illusion. Uh, Calderon's Life is a Dream, La Vida es Sueño, seems to pervade much of the literary and artistic culture of 17th century Spain. Uh, here, for instance, is a painting by Antonio de Pereda called The Night's Dream, which is in the Academia de San Fernando, uh, where we'll be meeting on Sunday morning. And as you can see, it's a representation of the vanity of human life with the skull and so on, the hourglass. And this sense of the illusionistic nature of human experience is, of course, a principal characteristic of the Baroque societies of Counter-Reformation Europe. But I think it may have been intensified in Spain by the acuteness of its problems and by the constant resort to dissimulation, the need to put on an outward show in order to hide from others the painful reality beneath. Uh, this was a country in which the gentleman, the Hidalgo, who'd gone down in the world, would do everything possible to conceal by his appearance, his gestures, and his behavior that he had nothing to eat when the next meal time came round. There are two races in the world, uh, observed Sancho Panza in Don Quixote, the haves and the have-nots. And here you have three have-nots, although one has less than the others. Uh, and that is the, the African slave here who's trying to get a piece of the uh, apple tart uh, from this uh, little boy here. This is a, a famous Murillo in the Dalich picture gallery. There were a great many have-nots in the deeply unequal society which Don Quixote and Sancho Panza encountered in the course of their wanderings. But there were also some who had a very great deal indeed. And I think it's to these we must look if we're seeking the clues to the flourishing state of the arts in a Spain faced with decline. Uh, some of these were to be patrons of artists and men of letters. And patronage, both individual and collective, is to my mind a vital key to the creation of an artistic golden age. Well, now, where did wealth lie in 17th century Spain? Uh, to begin with, with the church. Uh, the church and several of the religious orders were immensely rich, thanks to accumulated revenues and a constant flow of gifts and bequests and charitable foundations. And this wealth uh, found expression in lavish church building, 
especially in principal cities like Madrid and Seville, and in the great retablos, the altarpieces, uh, many of them with silver altar frontals made of silver from Mexico and Peru. Uh, here's, for instance, the uh, chapel of the Hospital of the Venerables in Seville. You can see uh, the, splen the Baroque splendor uh, of the whole uh, scene. Uh, it found expression, too, that wealth of the church in painted religious images uh, created by brilliant craftsmen uh, like Juan Martinez Montañez in Seville. Here is his uh, Christ on the Cross from one of the Seville churches. And above all, in paintings with religious themes, which constitute an important part of the artistic production of 17th century Spain. Uh, the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary uh, was a favorite theme. Uh, here is perhaps the most famous of all Immaculate Conceptions by Murillo, uh, reunited for the first time this year. Uh, the, the painting itself is in the Prado. Uh, the frame has remained in Seville. Uh, the painting was plundered by the Napoleonic forces and taken to France and only restored to Spain in the early 1940s. Uh, Murillo's uh, Immaculate Conception. And Murillo's great patron uh, was a canon of Seville Cathedral, Justino de Nevi, whose portrait he painted, which is in the National Gallery in London. And Justino de Nevi's family wealth originally came like that of so many other Seville families from trade with America. And Seville, as the capital of Spain's Atlantic economy, was one of the richest cities in the world. Its streets, as a contemporary said, were paved with silver and gold. But there were other cities with wealthy secular and ecclesiastical elites. And high among them was Toledo, the seat of Spain's prime archbishopric and one of the most vibrant cultural and intellectual centers of late 16th and early 17th century Spain. Uh, here is El Greco's uh, view of Toledo, uh, now in the Metropolitan Museum. And it was in Toledo that El Greco uh, coming from Crete by way of Italy, settled in 1577 after he'd failed to find favor with Philip II. And it was the urban elite, uh, both lay and religious, that provided him with the commissions that allowed him to live in style until his death in 1614. And many of these commissions were for the cathedral and for churches and chapels, like this wonderful burial of the Count of Orgath for the parish church of San Tomé in Toledo, with the, the heavenly elite above and the earthly elite below, which of course is the elite of El Greco Toledo, uh, with uh, superb portrait representations. And he carried out also many individual portrait commissions for members of that Toledo elite, like this wonderful portrait in the Prado, no doubt you'll see tomorrow, of a nobleman with his hand on his chest. The third major source of patronage, and potentially the most important, was the royal court in Madrid. And the court consisted, of course, of the monarch and his family, the upper ranks of the nobility and royal ministers, councillors and officials, many of them extremely rich, uh, often through ill-gotten gains, needless to say. And when Olivares came to power in the early 1620s, he was determined to make the court of the young Philip IV the center of Spain's cultural life and a model for the rest of Europe. He brought with him from his native Seville the tradition of cultural patronage. And it was through Olivares that the young civilian artist Diego de Velázquez was summoned to Madrid to become the king's painter. Velázquez had shown his skills on a first visit, unsuccessful visit to Madrid in 1622 when he uh, did a, a portrait of the poet uh, Luis de Gongra, uh, now in the Museum of Fine Art in Boston. And once appointed as court painter, he'd go on to produce an extraordinary series of portraits of the king and the royal family over a court career spanning nearly 40 years. And those of you who get to the Prado this afternoon are going to be able to see many of these portraits for yourselves. And here I just attempt to uh, are a few samples. Philip IV as a hunter, he was a great huntsman like most of the monarchs of that period, painted in the 1630s. Uh, his son and heir, uh, Baltasar Carlos on horseback, who died tragically prematurely young at the age of 16, thus uh, wrecking the succession effectively. 
But as a counterpoint uh, to the royal family, Velazquez also portrayed court buffoons and dwarfs, uh, paintings full of pathos and humanity. This one, for example, of the dwarf Francisco Lezcano, which is also in the Prado. And the series uh, of court portraits, uh, of course, culminates in the greatest of all his works, Las Meninas, uh, painted in the 1650s, where we see depicted the king's young daughter by his second marriage, the Infanta Margarita, together with her ladies-in-waiting, ladies two dwarfs, and Velázquez himself, obviously, standing here at the easel, easel, proclaiming the nobility of painting as exemplified in his own person and achievements. Well, Philip himself, Philip IV himself, was a discriminating connoisseur and a dedicated collector of works of art. He was a cultivated musician. He adored the theater as well as the actresses and built up an important private library. And this fitted him ideally to take center stage in Olivares' cultural program as the patron of artists and men of letters and as a role model for the aristocracy who followed his example in patronizing poets and playwrights and in picture collecting. And in Olivares' hands, he became the so-called planet king, the central sun in the Copernican universe, the, the sun was the fourth of the planets, the central sun around whom rotated the luminaries of Spain's cultural world, Lope de Vega, Quevedo, Calderón, Velázquez, and a whole host of lesser writers and painters. And in the 1630s, Olivares built for uh, Philip on the eastern outskirts of Madrid uh, a pleasure palace, uh, the palace of the Buen Retiro, which unfortunately was destroyed almost entirely by a bombardment in the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, in that, uh, in that uh, palace, uh, he could preside over courtly and cultural activities and watch spectacular theatrical performances in the brand new palace theater equipped with the most up-to-date stage machinery. The, palace, the theater, the Coliseo, which no doubt we'll hear about from Jonathan Thacker, uh, was not built at this moment. It was, this is painting in 1637, thereabouts, by Giuseppe Leonardo, and the Coliseo is built in the next two or three years. And there he could watch these plays, uh, as could the court audiences. Well, Philip's court world was increasingly a world of illusion, remote from the realities of the 1630s and 40s. Uh, the central hall of the palace, uh, called the Hall of Realms here, uh, which is about the only part that now survives, uh, the central hall uh, was decorated with a whole series of battle paintings depicting Spanish victories during the first years of the reign. And among these, uh, one of Velázquez's most famous paintings, The Surrender of Breda, many of you again will see in the Prado today, stood out for its quality and its theme. A magnanimity at the moment of triumph in 1625 when Ambrosio Spinola here, the commander of Spain's army of Flanders, actually dismounted from his horse and embraced the defeated commander of the Dutch garrison, uh, Justin of Nassau. But in 1637, two years after the painting was completed and hung, the Dutch recaptured Breda, and the writing was on the wall. Victories were turning to ashes, and Spain was on the road to defeat. Now, Olivares, for all his efforts, had proved unable to check the decline of the great imperial power which had dominated the European political scene for more than a century. And most of the political and military triumphs of that century proved in the end to be ephemeral. It was not them, but the art, the literature, the poetry and the plays that survived. Testimonies to the fact that military failure and economic decline were not incompatible with an extraordinary flourishing of the arts. Ultimately, the arts were financed in large part by the gold and silver flowing in from America, but it was the patronage of elites and royal example and encouragement that nurtured two or three supremely talented generations of artists and men of letters and transformed Spain's age of decline into the golden age of its arts. Thank you very much.
When the Royal Shakespeare Company mounted productions of four Spanish Golden Age, Golden Age plays in 2004, their promotional literature referred repeatedly to the works they had chosen to put on as belonging to an unopened treasure chest of European drama. Indeed, marketing aside, the rich theatrical heritage of the Spanish Golden Age is underappreciated in European cultural history. The names and works of the main playwrights of the period, Lope de Vega, Tirso de Molina, Ruiz de Alarcón, Guillén de Castro, Calderón de la Barca, several of them better known as street names and metro stops to the casual visitor to Madrid, tend to be located on the fringes of general cultural knowledge. Though Calderón's La Vida Sueño, Life is a Dream, does form part of the European theatrical canon. In fact, um, I saw it on, on Wednesday night in the Oxford Playhouse in a student production in, in Spanish. A number of factors explain this generally marginal status. In the late 16th and early 17th centuries, it was Spanish prose fiction, including Cervantes' Don Quixote, and to a lesser extent poetry that tended to be translated into English. It, not so much drama. It was difficult to find golden age drama to read on the page, and on the stage too, the lack of a performance tradition over the centuries, akin to those in England and France, meant that even here in Spain's capital, the classical drama was not kept alive and appreciated as spectacle and as spoken poetry. It's hardly surprising then that it should not have flourished elsewhere in Europe, in spite of influential individuals' periodic recognition of its quality. The relative absence from the modern British stage until a recent surge of interest epitomized by the RSC's season has been explained then by this general neglect here in its native country. But there've also been more specific impediments such as uh, a British reticence about going to see translated drama, the foreignness of the themes of the drama itself, particularly the obsessive honor code and the difficulty of rendering into English the Spanish verse forms in which the playwrights worked. Before we look in more detail at the relationship of this drama to Golden Age society, let me sketch in a little bit of background. The Golden Age of Spanish theatre is intimately linked to the creation of Madrid as Spain's new capital by Philip II in 1561, um, as we just heard, and the birth there the following year of Lope Félix de Vega Carpio. This is a portrait from um, the Lázaro Galdiano Museum, just um, quite close to where we are at the moment. Lope's parents were attracted by and appear to have flourished in the new court. His father was in, an embroiderer. Lope de Vega's invention of the Comedia Nueva the new kind of theatre in the 1580s and 1590s was the most important step forward in the development of Spanish theatre. Invention is an imperfect description of his undertaking since Lope filleted the varied pre-existing dramatic genres to create a broadly tragicomic three-act play. This crucially appealed to the broad-based audience of courtiers and court dwellers who amassed in Madrid at this time and attended performances in the first playhouses. Lope took the best from and dispensed with the weaknesses of the different kinds of drama then being written and performed. Some largely comic in a popular vein, others often more tragic in outlook, which were bookishly and as it turned out, disastrously classical in inspiration. Lope's first plays and those of his numerous acolytes were performed in Madrid's new permanent theatres called Corrales. Unlike in London, where the theatres were purpose-built, the early Spanish playhouses were adapted courtyards, hence the name, surrounded by houses. So this is a 
um, a picture taken from a book by José Ruano, um, a, a mock-up of the um, Corral del Príncipe, one of these first two theatres, and um, you can see at the sides over here um, and here the, um, the, the boxes at the theatre, the, the grills, um, uh, behind the grills are rooms which originally belonged to neighbouring properties. Um, as in England, a trip to the theatre would have been a colourful and raucous experience. In truth, we have not a single contemporaneous eyewitness account of a comedia being performed in a corral, but we do have a wealth of other documentation about the history of the theatre in this period, enough to make Shakespeare scholars green with envy. And in Almagro, to the south of Madrid, we have the reconstructed Corral Theatre, home to a festival each July. It's a slightly different um, kind of theatre to the, to the one in Madrid, slightly smaller. And um, you can go and watch plays there today. Whilst many spectators sat in the Corrales, the groundlings stood in the patio, in the yard, and they'd make their feelings on the play obvious whilst bantering with the women seated above and behind them. The role of women was very significant in Spanish theatre. Offstage, where these female spectators were crammed into their own section, the cazuela, or stewpot, and on, on this slide it's, it's number five, so you can actually see the women had the best view in the, in the house, this is looking from the, from the stage. Into, into the auditorium. And on stage two, where to popular acclaim, actor managers continued to employ actresses in their troops in spite of ecclesiastical disapproval and periodic legislation. The Spanish theater of the time also had at its disposal a useful practical argument against the moralists who tried consistently to close the playhouses down. Some of the profits from the corrales went directly to hospitals for the needy and any reduction in their charitable income had real social consequences. In Madrid, which took over from centres such as Valencia and Seville as theatrical capital of Spain in the 1570s and 1580s, two new theatres were set up, the Cruz in 1579 and the Principe, the one you saw earlier, in 1582. Spanish Gold Age audiences demanded new entertainments every few days, a fact that accounts for the extraordinarily prolific playwrights of the period. Lope de Vega himself probably wrote over 800 plays, um, leaving Shakespeare a long way behind, and leaving Cervantes to dub him a freak of nature. Um, in one of the most interesting theatrical documents on theatre in early modern Europe, the Arte Nuevo de Hacer Comedias en Este Tiempo, the new art of writing plays in this time, first delivered as a speech to an academy and first published in 1609, Lope de Vega summarises his approach to playwriting and sets out a sort of dramatic manifesto. By this time, of course, he had become a successful professional playwright and his type of theatre had won the battle with the neoclassicists. What comes across in the poem, above all, is the playwright's brilliant ability to appeal to different sectors of the play-going public at the same time. His academic audience is told, apologetically, that, that his theatre is paid for by the masses, and so he has to speak to them directly. Nevertheless, he's well aware of classical theory, mainly in the form of neo-Aristotelianism, appreciated by the educated sec sectors of the audience. Whatever Lope said, the plays contained elements that appealed to all, the more cultured spectator, the would-be intellectuals, the nobility, the burgeoning middle classes, even the clergy, the uneducated, and both men and women. In the 1619 prologue to the 12th parte of his, his plays, and the, the plays were published in volumes of 12 called, called Partes, um, so the, the, the um, prologue to the twelfth parte contains the claim that amongst those that follow me, some understand me, others think they understand, and others repeat what they hear to those who do understand. 
Lope himself was well aware of differences within his audience, and he had a rare knack of appealing to the vulgo, to the uneducated masses, while satisfying the more discerning audience member. And so producing a, a popular culture whose form and content can still be admired four centuries later. In what I've set, set out so far in broad brushstrokes, I've already more than hinted at the close relationship between theatre and society in early modern Spain. You might say that that's obvious. No theatre can remain aloof from the world that produces it and consumes it. However, it's a relationship that's been poorly understood and occasionally willfully misunderstood over the years, thanks to some uh, misleading assumptions and theories. It's this relationship uh, between theatre and society that much of my own research into this drama investigates. I don't think it's a coincidence that the theatre in, in, the, in this period grew up with the new capital, holding up a mirror to use the Ciceronian metaphor that the dramatists themselves were very fond of to a rapidly changing world, one in which, to borrow a phrase from José Antonio Maraval, individuals were threatening to escape the traditional frames of the social order. In a Spain, living in fear of the powers of the Holy Inquisition and under the thumb of a series of Habsburgs, Habsburg monarchs and their favourites, was it possible for the plays in the Corrales to provide a distorted or critical reflection of the society which they entertained? I want to make some suggestions towards an answer to this question in the time that remains this morning. It was in the kind of stories it told and the ways it told them that Golden Age drama engaged in a dialogue with the society that brought it forth. The huge number of plays being produced, all of them subject to state and ecclesiastical censorship, and the apparent orderliness of the society for which they were written have led many observers to conclude that the theatre was a supporting pillar of the early modern Spanish world. The influential 20th century scholar Maraval, whom we've just quoted, reckoned that the kind of values which regularly underpinned the world of the Comedia, of this new theatre, were those of the church and the state, the monolithic Spain of the empire built by Charles V and Philip II in the 16th century and of the Inquisition. He felt that most playwrights had presented to their audiences models of behavior which encouraged them to remain passively in their places. Such a response is excusable given the poetic justice that often reigns, the respect for the king and his authority at the end of the plays, the apparent lack of social mobility and the relating of particular qualities such as honor to particular classes or groups. However, this new kind of drama did not in fact portray a homogenous society at peace with itself, reflecting back groups comfortably settled in their social roles. To take one example, until relatively recently, scholars believed that Pedro Calderón de la Barca was a stern supporter of the so-called honor code which allowed a suspicious husband to murder his wife, even if she proved to be innocent of adultery, in order to preserve his social standing. Gerald Brennan, for example, wrote of the protagonist of El Medico de Su Honra, the doctor of his honor, that, and I quote, this secret premeditated murder of an innocent wife is held up to us as a course to be followed. A careful re-examination of Calderon's trio of so-called wife murder plays in fact reveals the dramatist's irony. He undermines the self-styled doctor of his honor, for example, by having the remedy he employs to cure his wife's apparent infidelity produce the same effect, death, as that of so many quacks of satirical renown. It's not just through irony that Golden Age playwrights engage critically with the world beyond the stage. If we think of early modernity as bringing with it a fresh valorization of the individual and the start of what will become in some parts a revolutionary overturning of the old order, Maraval's traditional social frames, then I think that this is discernible in Golden Age drama, though expressed elliptically and tangentially. 
So, for example, in Lope de Vega's comedy, El Perro del Hortelano, and I've taken this image from a, a well-known film version of, of this play, um, translates as the, do the dog in the manger in English. So in, in this comedy, the hero, Teodoro, a lowly secretary, ends the play married to the Countess Diana, his mistress. She has spent the play prevaricating, barely admitting to herself that she has fallen in love with a social inferior. When Teodoro's own, ser own servant, Tristan, persuades a senile aristocrat that Teodoro is his long-lost son, Diana marries him, but they both know the truth, and there's a suggestion that it will emerge in time. For example, in the play's final speech, Tristan urges the audience to keep the secret. Lope and his contemporaries knew the social truth behind the facade, <clears throat> that noble families fallen on hard times had to marry into money from often converted Jewish classes, classes below them, and genealogies could be faked to hide the secret. Lopez plays a fine comedy, technically one of the best in European theatre, but it also reflects a society not being honest with itself, putting on an outward show in the, in the terms that Sir John's just used. There was food for thought here, for some at least. In another play of a similar period, Peribanyev, a so-called peasant honor drama, Lope has the eponymous peasant kill the commander, his feudal lord. The reaction of the king is predictably one of, the is one of outrage, and the monarch at first demands the execution of the peasant. However, Peribanyev escapes death and is in fact promoted because the commander he killed had, in what was really a, a joke ceremony, knighted Peribanyev and sent him off to war. He had done so in order to clear his path to the peasant's wife, with whom he is infatuated. Does a peasant have the right to kill his superior to protect his honor, as Peribanyev does? In Lope's play, it would seem so, but the story is carefully crafted so that one could argue the opposite case, that a peasant is still bound by his lowly status. I hope these examples are beginning to show how Lope and Calderon, like the best of their contemporaries, were able to subtly probe the construction of the social world about them, in part by portraying characters who pushed the limits of what was expected of them. In other plays, it's the voice of the gracioso, the comic servant, who became a fixture in this drama during the 1590s that provides an alternative worldview. Although this figure is related to that of Don Quixote's usually foolish sidekick, Sancho Panza, it also owes something to the, the clever slave of Roman comedy. And the gracioso often exhibits a sharp wit. Like the aforementioned Tristan in The Dog in the Manger, he often manages to extricate his master from difficult situations. This is a fine example, I think, of how the playwrights of the period combined elements of native and classical drama to appeal to more than one section of the audience. I mentioned the importance of women, too. With a good percentage of the audience being female, it was a foolish dramatist who alienated women. Play after play of the period depicts strong female characters played by well-remunerated star actresses, some favored by royalty, especially in the case of Philip IV, as Sir John has just hinted. These are characters often able to negotiate a better social position through wit, role play, and strength of personality. A good case in point is Calderon's La Dama Duende, the Phantom Lady, an impecunious widow held in virtual captivity by her brothers in their house in Madrid, by her brothers, sorry, in their house in Madrid. From a secluded room, she manages to orchestrate a plot dependent on male gullibility and predictable chivalry, which wins her a desired second husband. The men are the gulls of the play. The more serious plays, usually called simply dramas in Spanish, are able to reflect philosophical concerns of the day. In a period where Spaniards tended not to produce, uh, if you like, straight philosophy, as the English and French did. So Calderon's masterpiece, already mentioned, Life is a Dream, and 
this is an image from um, a lot of you who've spent time in Madrid recently will recognize from the CNTC's production uh, last year. So Life is a Dream can be read ultimately as a guide to leading a good life. Here, the confusion experienced by Prince Segismundo in one reading and a kind of everyman figure faced with deciphering uh, um, appearances from reality lead to a neo-Stoic conclusion characteristic of some of Spain's other great writers, uh, notably Francisco de Quevedo and the Jesuit Baltasar Gracián. But Life is a Dream is also a kingship play, and I'd like to finish in an attempt to um, tie in a little bit with what Sir John was saying earlier, with a brief consideration of the extent to which Golden Age dramatists questioned their leaders. The most contentious subject for debate especially in the early decades of the 17th century as the son and grandson of Philip II ruled uncertainly over a discordant and troubled empire, was precisely the role of the monarch. Once again, traditionally, the dramatists have been seen as staunch supporters of their kings. However, whilst there's no evidence that they do not support monarchy as an institution, Dramatists did reflect concerns expressed elsewhere in society over questions of the prince's education, the evils of Machiavellianism, reason of state and tyranny, and in particular, the role of the privado or favorite. Philips III and IV left much of the running of the empire to their chief ministers, the Duke of Lerma and the Count Duke of Olivares, respectively, and a host of dramas featuring the figure of the favorite consequently emerged. Thus, the wisely anonymous author of La Estrella de Sevilla, The Star of Seville, a play set in medieval times, but probably written to coincide with Philip IV's visit to Seville in 1624, vividly portrays in his drama the consequences of a royal favorite encouraging the king to follow his private passions rather than what is appropriate to his role. The kind of nocturnal seduction that King Sancho attempts in the full knowledge of his right-hand man, Don Arias in the play, was a clear reference to the behavior of the youthful Philip IV, guided by his wily and more experienced advisor in Madrid. The drama also demonstrates how the power of the king invested in his officials can be used to bring the monarch himself to book. It ends with the humiliation of the young King Sancho forced to admit his own fault, faced with the worthy intransigence of the mayors of Seville. Play after play dealt subtly with similar subjects, making use, like the Star of Seville, of historical or geographical displacement to disguise topicality, albeit thinly. The key again for the playwrights was ambivalence. It was possible to deny the ad hominem content by reference to an interest in history or legend. And in truth, the major playwrights of the day were adept at knowing what the limits were. Today, I've only begun to scratch the surface of this rich, rewarding, and still under-researched dramatic tradition. I hope to have piqued your interest in some works and dramatists that are well worth further investigation. Theater as an art form has the potential, of course, for many reincarnations on stage. There are some signs here in Lopez and Calderon's native city and, and further afield in other cultures that its quality is at last being recognized in renewed testing on the boards. It will not be found wanting and has plenty still to say to us today. Thank you very much. <laughs>